So this evening, as I mentioned, I want to speak about Martin Luther King and the Buddha and the situation in Haiti and uh, how we hold something as tragic and difficult as that. I came across a, uh, uh, a list, it was a, a poll from Gallup about the people who were most widely, widely admired in the last century. It was a poll taken in America. And the, the results of the poll kind of surprised me. Who do you think would be the most widely respected person of the last century who asked American people? Elvis. Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't Elvis. <laughs> it was close, but it wasn't JFK. JFK. He was up in the top five. Roosevelt. No. Mother Teresa. It was Mother Teresa. I was really surprised. Three out of the top five are really known for their compassion. And you maybe maybe in some degree the fourth. Um, so the first, the most pop, the person. Most widely admired was Mother Teresa. The second was Martin Luther King, Jr. Uh, I, forget, I forget the exact order. Um, JFK, I think, was third. And then Helen Keller was fourth. And Albert Einstein, who was also known for his profound compassion and, and seeing through his work that deep need for us to embrace all life. In fact, I have a reading from his, which, I, which is often read, and I will read it just to point that out, because it really speaks to the theme of the talk. He said, a human being is part of the whole, called by us a universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself and his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a prison, restricting us to our personal desires and affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. So when I was watching those scenes from Haiti last week, um, it, those kind of things, those tragic events, break us out of that small shell, the prison of compassion that we often live in, and, and allow us to extend our hearts to a huge array of people and gives us a glimpse into the possibility of what it would be like to have a heart that open, that receptive, that caring all of the time. And these great figures clearly embody that capacity. So um, just before King died, um, he was interviewed and asked how he would like to be remembered. And there was all kinds of interesting things the last few days, the last weeks of before he died, it seemed to be sort of some kind of premonition about what was going to happen. And um, he says this, he says, um, he said, well, if people should remember me around my funeral, he said, rather than the awards and where he went to school and people I met and connected with, he said, people should talk about how he, he fought peacefully for justice. And he goes on to, th to reflect on the things he'd like to be remembered for. 
I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for you to say that Martin Luther King tried to love somebody, that he tried to be on the right, to be right on the war question around Vietnam, to be able to say that he tried to feed the hungry, he tried to clothe those who were naked, tried in his life to visit those who were in prison, and tried to love and serve humanity. And yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. Including the amazing work he did in the civil rights movement. So it's interesting how he likes to be remembered as this real champion, which he was, for peace, for justice, for the oppressed, for suffering. So I'm going to play a couple of pieces from his very well-known speeches just to bring him into the room and to really honor the, the work that he did. And I'll, I want to speak to how I see his work really being very syntonic with so much of Buddhist teaching. If technology will oblige. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. That my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. Powerful stuff, huh? Yeah. 
interesting to see how far we've come with that dream. You know, some things got actualized and some things were a long, long way from that, still, here and elsewhere. So I spend a lot of the... I'm, I just got back from teaching a, a loving-kindness retreat on the East Coast, and so I'm getting up at four in the morning because it's wake-up time over there. And so I spent the morning just reading about Martin Luther King Jr. I didn't grow up, you know, I grew up in England, so I wasn't so, it wasn't so instilled in me, the, the, the presence of this man and his effect. And um, I was really inspired, as I say, um, couldn't help drawing parallels. So I'm going to read some things um, that really seem to overlap for me, the teachings of, of King and the teachings of the Buddha. So King talked about darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. And of course, one of the most famous things that the Buddha said was hatred can never, be, can never cease by hatred, only by love alone can hatred cease. And, the Buddha also, and King also talked about love being the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Love being the only force capable of transforming love and transforming an enemy into a friend. And the Buddha also talked about the power of love, the power of metta, the power of loving kindness to transform the hatred in our own hearts. He talked about developing this quality of, of kindness and, and friendliness that's equal to all people, all beings. And just as King said there, he looks forward to a day when people will be judged by the color of their skin not, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of the character. And it reminded me of um, an aspect of the Buddha's teaching where he was quite a social revolutionary. Like a lot of very original teachers, he looked to not be uh, overhauling society in a, in a violent way, in, in, in that kind of revolutionary way, but he hoped, by, um, transforming, he hoped to transform the culture by the values that people cultivated and practiced. So one of the things that Buddha did at the time, which was very revolutionary, uh, he was living in, the, in, in a system that was governed by the Vedas, uh, which laid very strict social rules, um, one of which was the, the caste system, and, uh, which was very hierarchical and, and really constrained people to a certain, uh, a certain box, you know, a certain strata of society that was impossible to, to, to move to be to, to move to be fluid with, and so um, and the 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 height of, of the caste system was was the the Brahmin the Brahmin caste and um, so there's a lot of uh, reference in the Vedas about purity being equated to the Brahmin caste and so the Buddha said that um, purity and goodness and skillfulness and the sign of a spiritual being is not by is not, you're not born into that. You're, you, it's, it's something that you develop and cultivate through your own practice, your own efforts. And so he talked about a Brahmin being one who's purified their minds and their hearts and their being, not because of their birth. And that, it's, it's hard for us to really sense what that would be like in, in that time, but in India that would have been incredibly revolutionary to say that anybody is capable of being an awake, free, liberated human being, not just because of your, the, the fortunate circumstances of your birth. 
so it doesn't seem it, it, the, the irony is not lost to me that that we're um, having to f- face the suffering that's happening in Haiti. This 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 um, confluence of events of reflecting on Martin Luther King and then seeing the the incredible suffering both from the earthquake but also just to a country that's been ravaged by centuries and centuries of uh, racism and colonialism and exploitation and how many people here have been following events in Haiti just curious it's hard to avoid it really but some of you so for whatever reason, I, I found myself, in, probably because I was teaching this retreat where we were teaching the qualities of kindness and compassion, and we were all, all the teachers were following the news and, and really quite uh, moved and, and horrified. And I, you know, often ask this question, you know, what, what, what would the response of the Buddha be in a situation like this? What would the response of Martin Luther King Jr. be in a, in a situation like this? You know, maybe 100, 200,000 people have died, millions made homeless, millions displaced, the whole country in ruins. Poverty will be um, deepened and disruption of lives will, will and health and will, will be deepened. So although both, both of these men, both these figures talked about working with suffering and transforming suffering, um, and both talked about transforming the, the hatred in your own heart, the Buddha was more, more oriented towards looking internally at the, at the suffering that we create in our own minds and hearts and how that gets reflected externally. King was more oriented towards changing the structures that were causing suffering. But I think they both had their fuel, both had their center, they both had their motivation of being this force of love, force of compassion. This is from King. He says, An individual has not, has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individual consciousness and concerns, and extended it to the broader concerns of all of humanity. At the center of my nonviolent stance is the principle of love. That's very similar to the reading of, of Einstein. But until we learn how to step outside of this prison of individual self-concern that we all are wrapped up in and mesmerized by, what hope do we have to, to step forward with some kindness and compassion in the world? Again, this is from King. It is not enough to say we must not wage war. It is necessary to love peace and sacrifice for it. Every man and woman must decide whether or not they will walk in the light of creative altruism or in the darkness of destructive selfishness. The Dalai Lama put it in a different way. He said, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want yourself to be happy, practice compassion. You know, that we think by spending all of our times taking care of ourselves and our needs and our worlds and our desires and our goals, that that will be the, 
that will lead us to happiness. And, you know, and it's not to say it won't lead to a certain form of happiness, but it's not what, it's not what provides that deeper sense of connection and well-being and happiness that comes from, from extending that circle of concern to something broader than ourselves. There's a beautiful uh, teaching from the Buddha where he, at some point in his teaching career, he's amassed a you know, considerable amount of very enlightened, awakened disciples. And he gives this teaching basically saying, you know, go forth, go spread this teaching, this message of liberation, of freedom, of kindness, of compassion. Teach it to all beings everywhere. You know, don't just keep it for yourself, but actually take it out and serve through the understanding that you've developed, the freedom that you've accessed. So, King's reflection, I think, is a, is a really poignant one to ask, what are we doing for others? What are we doing for the world? How is our life an expression that brings about the kind of world that we want to see? Are we just wrapped up in our own world? And often we are, because the nature of our lives seem to pull for that. It takes, it takes a little more effort to reach outside of ourselves, to look outside of the walls of our own lives and see that the world going around and a lot of suffering going around. I often give this, uh, um, read this poem from the poet Hafez, who um, has one of his students come to him and... and he has a, he's had all these visions of God and these mystical experiences, and and he's so he's busy telling Hafez these experiences and wants to get some kind of confirmation or reflection. And um, Hafez says, "Well, that's very interesting, but how many goats do you have?" And the man says, "Goats? You're asking me about goats? I'm telling you about God and mysticism and my visions." And he said, "Yeah, how many goats do you have? You're a farmer, you know." So he says, "Well, you know, I have this so many sheep and this and goats and and then Hafez." goes on to ask him a bunch of other questions like, are your parents still alive and do you take care of your children and how do you treat your servants and your workers and do you feed the birds in winter and a whole bunch of questions like that. And the man still kind of bemused like, what's this got to do with you know, God and visions? And, and so he answers and, and, and Hafez says, well, you ask me if these visions of you know, these spiritual experiences are true and I say they are true if they make you more kind and more caring to every person, every creature that you meet. That the point of our practice isn't to just sit contentedly on a cushion and radiate love, you know, all beings everywhere, and then, you know, not care about anybody when we get off the cushion. The point is to care and actually live what we're cultivating, you know. We, this is called practice, right? And life is the performance, <laughs> So, you know, people often say, when's, you know, we do all this practice, practice, practice. When's the performance? Well, it's right now. It's every moment that you live, every moment that you breathe, every contact, every interaction, every conversation, every movement you make in this world. There was a Zen master, an old Zen master who was asked to, you know, as Zen masters often are at the, on, on their deathbed, you know, can you give us the... You know the summary of your life, or the you know can you can you put into a nutshell what you've learned? You know what what is Zen? What is this you know thing that we're doing that we have no idea what we're doing, but it's it's what we're doing. <laughs> and he says, 
uh, Zen or meditation, Dharma, is an appropriate response. It's an appropriate response to the moment. So some of his dis- disciples were like, is that it? <laughs> appropriate response? <laughs> well, well, that's not a big deal. But it's actually very profound, as these Zen teachings often are. They so can seem very banal, yeah, appropriate response. But what is an appropriate response in the moment? What is an appropriate response to the great tragedy in the world, like in Haiti or in Afghanistan or wherever we find it, Darfur? What is the appropriate response when we sit in meditation and we're overwhelmed with grief and sadness or loneliness or despair? What is the appropriate response when you find that in your friend who's lonely and feeling some loss or despair, sadness? I was just thinking about my housemate whose father died, passed away the day just before Christmas and going through a very difficult time, as, as, as you can imagine. And, you know, this question comes arise, what's the appropriate response? The appropriate response is to be kind, is to be caring, is to be present, is to be nurturing in that situation. So I loved one of the responses that came to uh, Haiti was the, this, this, uh, this chance that people got to donate by texting. You could you text this number and 10 bucks went to Haiti, to the Red Cross. And by the way, the donations uh, today are going to the Red Cross, if I didn't mention that, um, who are doing great work there. And so, um, you know, 10 bucks is no big deal. You do a little text thing, it takes you five minutes if you can work out how to use text on your cell phone. And um, 400,000 people responded. They raised $4 million just from this very simple little thing. You know? It makes a difference. $4 million in Haiti goes a long way for medicine and uh, food. And it, it's been interesting to reflect on the situation in Haiti because mostly there's not a lot we can do. You know, we can pray and we can love and we can send out prayers and, and good wishes and we can send money if we have resources. Um, but, you know, I mean, the aid agencies can barely get in there to help, never mind any other people who want to go there and help. Um, but I was listening today um, on the radio, different responses. Maybe some of you heard it, like there was a, um, a whole bunch of different tech organizations, tech, tech folks, high, you know, tech-savvy folks who put together all kinds of resources for people in Haiti, sort of web links and connecting NGOs with people in need and Google Maps for people trying to find out where the aid's going and where it needs to go. And um, so all kinds of beautiful responses of the heart to this kind of situation. So I'm, I'm kind of curious what, what, what the response here has been to, to this situation, you know, which is one of innumerable situations that we... we sorry about the creaking. <laughs> Very creaky chair. Um, what has your response been? What, 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 what's the response been like in your heart? You know, comp- this com- quality of compassion is the quality of the heart that when it meets pain or suffering, naturally trembles, naturally feels the suffering, and feels, feels an empathic resonance with the suffering of those who are in pain. 
And that would be the natural response of an open heart. But of course, our hearts aren't always open. So, there is, so I imagine as you heard the news or read, read the newspaper or watched it on the web or whatever, that there was a whole range of responses in here to that tragedy, from despair to numbness to indifference to sadness to rage, yeah, probably all kinds. Maybe, maybe, maybe each one of you has had that range of experience. The Dalai Lama says, if you want to know what compassion looks like, look into the eyes of a mother who's looking at her sick child. That gives you a sense of this quality of compassion. And I, I want to speak a little more about this quality because it makes sense to speak about it when we're looking at this kind of situation, the kind of tragedy that's in the world, whether it's in Haiti or many of the other places in the world or the ecological crisis that's going on. So compassion is um, sometimes, in, 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 in Buddhist world, it's, it's, it's regarded as one of the most beautiful qualities, but it's sometimes elevated as a, this compassion that we can have for all beings. It's a boundless quality of the heart, but it's also a very simple, ordinary quality. That's just a simple act of caring, a, a sense of feeling empathy for someone who's suffering. So maybe we come into the room and we're meditating and we hear somebody crying, or we see some tears falling down someone's cheeks. And it's just that natural sense of connection we have with the person. When the heart's open, we connect. So it's that simple response to the cares for somebody in pain or cares for, for a situation like in Haiti. And it's also the, the desire to want to relieve the suffering in some way. Not to get rid of it as, a, as out of aversion, but out of a natural solidarity. So I came across this story the other day, which I thought was a very sweet expression of how simple this quality of compassion can be. It was um, uh, somebody, some, for some obscure reason, had put together this contest to find the most caring child. Why we need a contest to find a caring child, I don't know. But I think children are naturally caring in their, in their essence. Anyhow, the winner turned out to be a four-year-old boy whose next-door neighbor was an elderly gentleman who'd recently lost his wife. Upon seeing the, the man cry, his mom said, the little boy went into the, old grand, into the old gentleman's yard, climbed into his lap, and just sat there. When his mother asked him what he'd said to the neighbor, the little boy said, I didn't say anything, I just helped him cry. So compassion is just like that. It's an appropriate response to the moment to, and to know what, just what's needed. And here's a four-year-old boy who knows instinctively what's needed, just to cry. So we can feel compassion is a very tender sadness. When we see the suffering that we inflict on each other, whether it's individually or socially, or through racism, through exploitation, through all kinds of different ways, ways are innumerable, there's a sadness that can, that can fill our heart, just at the, the, um, the unnecessary pain that we inflict on each other. I was watching this as part of reading everything I could on Haiti. There was a, just at the beginning of the, probably the first day of the, the, the earthquake, they had some videos on um, 
I think it was on the Times website, of um, a film crew who had just been there photographing the, um, the ecological devastation that's happened in Haiti. They've done all kinds of studies comparing um, Haiti to f from decades ago to now because there's been such intense poverty um, the people have been forced to uh, go into the forest to get fuel, which means chopping down trees to create charcoal to either, either for heat or lighting or to sell so they can buy food and whatnot. And so in the 20s, um, that part of the island was a very beautiful uh, um, tropical rainforest. 65% of the, of the country was forest, and now there's about 2% left. And, you, and this, so this film crew flew over Haiti, and it was bald. You know, it was like the bald hills of England, like they had sheep you know, farming or something. It was just denuded of life. And of course, when you, when you take away a rain, we take away rainforest in the forest, you take away the, the land's natural capacity to absorb rain. And of course, they have a lot of intense rainstorms there. So when it rains, they have these incredible floods. And now every year, thousands of people are dying every year because of these floods. And so you see this chain of events that could have so easily been prevented. And it just, it, you know, the heart, when it touches the heart, it just feels incredibly sad that we do this. You know, as human beings, we, through our own ignorance, we do things that cause tremendous suffering now and in the future. So another aspect of compassion is this quality of universality where we feel, where we sense the suffering of someone or ourselves or a nation, and we sense that we're not separate from it, that it's part of our human experience, that it's, it's actually what connects us. So there's a well-known story of when the Buddha was teaching and a young woman came, a young mother came with her young son who just died and she was incredibly distraught and in and, and, and incredible mourning, as you can imagine. And she'd heard that, that the Buddha was a great teacher and maybe be able to heal her dead son. And so they talked, and the Buddha said, well, why don't you go find a mustard seed from a house that hasn't had any grieving going on, that hasn't lost anybody, and then when you come back, we'll, we'll, we'll see what we can do. And so she was really excited, went to the first house and said, I need a mustard seed. And they said, oh, of course, yeah, we can give you a mustard seed. And they said, oh, but wait, you know, it has to be from a house where there's nobody died, where there's no grieving. And she said, no, no, but, you know, my child just passed away too. And she went from house to house, and every house they had a story, someone just passing away, some grief going on. And at the end of going around the village, she realized, oh, this is the, this is the human condition that we all face, loss, tragedy, suffering, pain. And it's, it's, it's what connects us, is what binds us. And so the story goes, she buries her son, comes back to the Buddha and asks for ordination as a nun. So this quality of compassion is not just a feeling, but it's, it's, a, it's a response of the heart. This appropriate response is an active, it's a verb. It, it, it wants to move to help relieve pain and suffering in the world. Just as if you know, we cut our right hand, it doesn't look at the left, the left hand doesn't go, oh, tough, tough luck, you know. 
No, it wants to immediately heal, touch, you know, put salve on, whatever it is. It's, it's, it's a natural responsiveness. This is from, um, this is a, an example of a natural kindness responsiveness. This is from Mary Oliver. I think I read this some time ago, but it's, it's just a sweet poem. It's called In Praise of Craziness of a Certain Kind. On cold evenings, my grandmother, with ownership of only half a mind, the other half having flown back to Bohemia, spread newspapers over the porch floor. So, she said, the garden ants could crawl beneath as under a blanket and keep warm. And what shall I wish for, for myself, but being so struck by the lightning of years, to be like her with, that, with what is left, that loving. And this is from our president. I'm not used to quoting presidents in Dharma talks, but we have an unusual president, so um, here we are. You know, there's a lot of talk in this country about the federal deficit, but I think we should talk more about our empathy deficit. The ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, to see the world through the eyes of those who are different from us. The child who's hungry, the steel worker who's been laid off, the family who just lost their entire life they built together when the storm came to town. When you think like this, when you choose to broaden your ambit of concern and empathize with the plight of others, whether they are close friends or distant strangers, it becomes harder not to act, harder not to help. And they've done a lot of studies on our capacity to empathize. Study this, you know, to, to, to this quality to feel empathy for another's pain. You know, it's what's most lacking in serial killers is this, is this capacity to feel into the reality of another person. And again, it, it, it requires, it necessitates us getting out of our, the prison of our own self-obsessed world to, to have enough awareness, enough space to take in somebody else. You know, to feel what it's like when you see these people scrambling over, this, over the rubble in, in Haiti, looking for family, looking for loved ones, and just imagining what that would be like. It would be unbearable angst, unbearable suffering to not know. So here's another story. Again, just pointing to the simplicity of putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Two brothers worked together on a family farm. One was married and had a large family. The other was single. At the day's end, the brothers shared everything equally, produce and profit. Then one day, the single brother said to himself, it's not right that we should share equally the produce and profit. I'm alone and my needs are simple. So each night, he took a sack of grain, took a sack of grain from his bin and crept across the field between their houses, dumping it into his brother's bin. Meanwhile, the, brother, the married brother said to himself, it's not right that we should share this, the produce and the profit equally. After all, I'm married, and I have my wife and my children to look after me in years to come. My brother has no one and no one to take care of his future. So each night he took a sack of grain and dumped it into a single brother's bin. Both men were puzzled for years because their supply of grain never dwindled. <laughs> then one dark night, the two brothers bumped into each other. Slowly it dawned on them what was happening. They dropped their sacks and embraced one another. 
So it can be that simple. I remember when Hurricane Katrina hit, a friend of mine had this really cool wagon. It was like a, I don't know, it was like a big camper van thing that he lived in. And um, he just went to the store, went to the drugstore, loaded up with food and water and medical supplies and just drove four days to New Orleans. Just simple act, spontaneous. So, um, so I want to speak a little about what helps us have this orientation that's more other regarding, that can take in and respond to the suffering of another. And like most things, it begins with ourselves. It begins with how we relate to the suffering in ourselves because it's the extent that we shut down and close our hearts to ourselves. Guess what we do to our friends and our loved ones and the world? You know, if we can't tolerate feeling pain here, we're not going to be welcoming it out there. You know, we're going to have a knee-jerk response of, no, I can't deal with that because I can't deal with this. There's a researcher... Um, who's connected to this retreat that I taught last week in, in IMS. We actually, the, the retreat was a, um, a meta-retreat, a loving-kindness retreat for scientists and uh, psychologists and researchers, people doing really fascinating research on the mind. And, um, and, there's, and there's a, as you may know, there's been a lot of research done on mind and meditation and mindfulness. Um, but now there's, a, there's, there's an increase in uh, studying the effect of compassion and the practice of loving kindness and what, 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 what effect this has on the mind and the capacity for empathy and care. And um, Kristen Neff is one of those researchers and she's been doing a lot of work on self-compassion, studying self-compassion, what it is. Self-compassion is the capacity to care for oneself if we're suffering rather than to judge ourselves. It's the capacity to know to understand that what we're going through is universal. It's not just our own fault or our own problem. And it's also to be able to hold our suffering with some awareness, with some kindness. And the studies that she's done said that you know, people who have this capacity have much greater psychological health. Surprise, surprise. Much greater access to happiness and well-being. Surprise, surprise. Anyhow, so... Um, we're drawing on this capacity in ourselves... As we, as we look to, to respond to the suffering in others. And fortunately, this quality of kindness or compassion is innate within us. We come into this world with this quality that wants to care, the heart that wants to feel and love each other. Right? We didn't come into this world despotic and autocratic and fearful and full of hatred. That, that, that develops through conditioning. So um, part of practice is looking and understanding what's gotten in the way, what obscures this natural quality of heart. This is from Gary Larson. This is what Gary Larson has to say about this, the great philosopher. So we're, now we're in hell, right? We're in Satan's den, and Satan is just coming out from the fiery tombs, and he's shouting, Mom, Mom, no, no. 
and a little caption and then he says, despite his repeated efforts to explain things to her, Satan could never dissuade his mum from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. <laughs> and there's a little picture of her with a little, you know, devil's pinny on it, milk and cookies and little devil, you know, tail sticking out of the apron and doing her thing. You know, that that's, you know, that's partly what's innate with us. We want, to, we want to care, we want to be kind. But as we learn to do that, the first thing that we have to learn to be fluent with is, is how to be with our own suffering and our own pain. Usually when we're experiencing some kind of difficulty, we want to avoid it, we want to fix it, we want to get rid of it, we want it to go away, we want anything but feel it. Right? And what happens with all those strategies we do to try and get away from our suffering? Do they work? Or do they really work? They might work temporarily, you know, the pint of milk in the ice cream, pint of ice cream in the fridge, should I say, or whatever it is your choice of distraction is. You know, so these, this practice is inviting us to lean into the difficulty, not because we're masochistic, but because this is what's here, this is what's present. And as we lean into, as we open to our own sadness and difficulty with an open heart, it allows the heart to open allows the heart, heart to grieve. And as we do this, as we develop some capacity with being with our own difficulty, it develops a certain kind of courage, a certain kind of strength of heart. This is a, a poem from the poet Rashani, who's clearly done a lot of deep work looking and exploring her own difficult realms of a heart. She says, there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which comes the unshatterable. There is sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy. It's very counterintuitive to think that through joy, through going through those doorways of the darkness, there will be joy. We think, oh my God, I'm just going to get depressed and I'll be on you know, medication and I'll be out of here. And, you know. But it's, it's actually through inviting and welcoming the dark, the difficult, the painful, that we also extend and increase our capacity for joy, for happiness, for well-being. So, um, just a couple of last things before we hear more from King. Um, so in the Buddha talked about, as we develop compassion, there's these things called the near enemy and the far enemy to the quality. And sometimes when we, we, we encounter great suffering, what gets triggered is not compassion, but the near enemy, which is, which is cruelty and hatred. And... Um, 
we can always count on Rush Limbaugh for um, providing that. I, I was <laughs> so on his radio program Wednesday morning, Rusty said that President Barack Obama and company would use Haiti to get closer to the light-skinned and dark-skinned black communities in this country, while adding that the U.S. has already donated to Haiti. It's called the U.S. income tax. So here's a good example of somebody whose heart is so closed that what comes out is venomous cruelty and it's a, you know, unbelievably shocking statements. Pat Robertson also chimed in, apparently, and said that the reason for Haiti's earthquake was, was that the nation, that the nation state made a, deal, made a deal with the devil. So that's why 200,000 people died. So, but we also have what's called the near enemies, or what I like to call the imposters of compassion, which, which may look like compassion and care, but actually don't have that same fullness of heart. Um, the, the most common one is pity. Pity is, can masquerade like compassion, but it has a, has a different quality in that we feel separate from that which we're feeling compassion for. So it's, oh, those poor people over there in Haiti, that's a really terrible thing to happen to them, not realizing that this is, this is part of our human experience. So it's separating rather than connecting. Another, another way of it can look is we try to fix the problem so we can get rid of it. And it can look like a compassionate response, but we're really just trying to get rid of it because we can't deal with just feeling the pain of it. And another um, uh, obstacle to compassion is, is um, an, also known as a near enemy or obstacle or imposter is the quality of overwhelm or despair. When we feel completely overwhelmed with suffering, it, it doesn't allow the heart to feel that sense of care because we're drowning in our own, in our own feeling. And what grounds compassion, which is different from that feeling of overwhelm, is the quality of equanimity. And the quality of equanimity is, is the quality that allows us to have balance that sees things from a much bigger perspective, allows us to hold the tragedy of the human predicament, that doesn't fight with these realities that come through, these storms, these tsunamis, these earthquakes, because we know that that's the truth of living in this world, that it's a, it's a vulnerable world, it's a changing world, subject to all kinds of tragedy. It's the way it is. And that quality of equanimity, of, of, of wisdom, allows us to hold the truth of that rather than drown in the anguish that it's not fair. You know, some people, another um, way that we sidestep compassion is sometimes we say, well, it's just their karma. You know, it's just their karma that they were at the wrong place at the wrong time, that they were born there, or... Um, and it's useful to know that there's, there's five different, from a Buddhist cosmological perspective, there's five different um, uh, attributes or categories of karma. And our personal, individual, volitional karma is just one piece of the karmic fabric that we live in. So another aspect of karma is what's called natural karma or um, physical organic karma, which involves things like 
earthquakes and tsunamis and epidemics that has nothing to do necessarily with our personal karma. We just happen to be in a situation where the natural karma of this world is unfolding and there's an earthquake and a lot of people die. So to not confuse this idea, well, what did all these people do wrong if it's their karma, you know, if karma means that they, we, we reap the consequence of our actions, how come they all suddenly, you know, what do they do wrong? Some of them are barely one years old. How can they reap that karma? So it's a, it's a bigger way of understanding that we live in a, in, a wor- in a world, in a universe that has these natural orders, these natural laws that we're subject to. And we have our own personal karma too of how we, the actions that we take and the responses that we create and the pathways that we develop in our lives that lead to certain results. So... So maybe that's enough words for me. Um, but I just want to leave you with, with the question of when, you know, as, as this, this tragedy is unfolding in Haiti or whatever tragedy is unfolding in your life or what, whatever difficulty, pain, suffering, anguish you feel in yourself or in others, to ask this question, of how am I responding? What is the appropriate response in this moment? What's, come, what's my capacity to respond? Do I open? Do I shut down? Do I receive? Do I accept? Do I resist and avoid? You're going back to that that phrase from the Dalai Lama, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want yourself to be happy, practice compassion. The practice of compassion, of opening to the suffering, to the world, actually brings tremendous open-heartedness, peace, Ease because we're not fighting with re- with reality. We're not we're not resisting reality. So I will leave you. I want to bring in King again, and then I'll just say a couple of words to close. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day... This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, My country tears of thee, sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. 
Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring. From the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania, let freedom ring. From the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado, let freedom ring. From the crevaceous slopes of California, but not only that, let freedom ring. From Stone Mountain of Georgia, let freedom ring. From Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring. <coughs> so happy Martin Luther King Day. <laughs> Thank you for your attention. And may you take this quality of compassion in your hearts, or at least to reflect on it in your lives. We all know the world needs our good hearts, our caring hearts, our empathic hearts. So I just have one, uh, two announcements um, before I end. Um, one is I'm, um, I lead, as many of you know, I, I, I have a whole... Um, series of retreats that I lead uh, meditation courses in nature. Um, I just came back from Costa Rica teaching a meditation yoga retreat. And this March, um, I'll be teaching a meditation kayaking retreat. It's a silent mindfulness retreat. We go out for a week uh, into the beautiful waters of Baja and the Sea of Cortez um, and meditate at sunrise and sunset. And so I have some cards here on the middle table. Um, so please, if you're interested in, in that, you can also find out some information about that and my other work on my website, awakenthewild.com. Um, so that's all for now. Please drive safe and turn right as you leave Spirit Rock. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.